Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Oh, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Steve Goff. We're at Colleen Clemens. It's July 19th, 2017. And Steve, we're going to start you off by asking you, why wine? Why wine? Oh. Well, I'm originally from the Philadelphia area, so I did not grow up in the industry by any means. Um, I grew far away from. <laughs> I grew up far away from the industry. Um, so, like a lot of people, I think I more came into wine probably coming from a family of uh, my mother is a very good cook. My, my both my parents are always into food and and somewhat into wine. Not as much into into wine, but into food. I mm-hmm. uh, grew up um, grew up working in restaurants through high school and then into college. Um, back when I was an undergrad at um, University of Pennsylvania, that's when I probably started attending uh, bar mm-hmm. at a nice restaurant on campus, and that's when I really started getting introduced to wine. Um, and then I was uh, had stuck around for a couple years. I managed uh, the bar at the restaurant. And the dining room manager would have me sit in with him when all the distributors would come around tasting wine. So mm-hmm. I really got into wine just by tasting wine mm-hmm. and exploring wine. And then I relocated to the Bay Area in 1996. Started visiting Napa and Sonoma. At that point, I was working in publishing. I was working for a book publisher over in Berkeley. <laughs> and I just, you know, got the wine bug. So I quit my job and I went and worked harvest. Uh, did my first heart, did first little bit of harvest work in '97, and then went back in '98, working at Carneros Creek, mm-hmm. and that was it. So that led me, led me back to. Um, I ended up going back to school and through the Enology and Viticulture program at Fresno State, and uh, doing some part-time work for some folks while I was doing that, and then landed here. Kind of, I think, somewhat on a fluke in 2001, up in up in the Willamette Valley. That is not here at Colin Clement. So before we get back to so that, so that oh, took you on a long. Does how do you get per- into wine? Perfect. We love it. Before we get back to the back to here, I'm curious. When you started to appreciate wine and drink wine, um, what were you drinking at that point? Was it French? Was it California? Was it a little bit of everything? Little of everything, although I, I think I more got introduced to wines um, through European wines. Um, and the first couple wines I can remember most distinctly were a Rioja and a Chianti, uh, at least on the red front. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we were pouring a mix of wines um, where I was working, um, Californian and. Uh, and imported. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was there when I'd say the first bottle of Oregon Pinot Noir I can recall would have been the '93 Adelsheim, um, which '93 ended up being one of my favorite vin- uh, favorite vintages. Mm-hmm. But uh, and then when I moved to the Bay Area, 
continue to explore wines and um, and it was always a mix for me of course I was visiting the valley visiting Napa and Sonoma but I was also perusing wine shops and exploring imports as well so so when you um, so you say you ended up in Oregon kind of on a fluke so how did that happen well I was coming out of the program at Fresno State in 2001 you know as like any uh, someone coming out of any program you're looking for a job and an opportunity and so you're firing off resumes in many different directions and I happened to there was a posting for uh, a position up here at Beaufrere um, I had never had Beaufrere wines but um, I'd seen their wines in the store. They were more money than I could afford <laughs> at the time. <laughs> um, they're still more money than I could afford. But, uh, and I thought it sounded, it was an interesting posting. I said, this could be, could be interesting. I was always kind of curious about Oregon and what was going on um, up here, but I, was, I, never had had, I never had the time to come up here and, and check it out. I was trying to get through the, the program down at Fresno State as quickly as possible and so sure. piling on the units and part-time work and all the above. So anyway, um, got a phone call from Mike Etzel at Beaufrere and we talked a little bit and then we decided that we'd correspond a little bit so I wrote him some things. I didn't necessarily think it was going to go, uh, had no idea where it might go, didn't necessarily think it was going to go. <laughs> too far but um, yeah it was funny I had had an offer from a, a winery for a job a winery in the Napa Valley uh, we talked terms and everything and I think this was on a Wednesday and I said well I'll let me talk it over sounds good I'll talk it over with my fiance at the time um, I'll let you know tomorrow okay good 730 the next morning I had a call from Mike <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and at that point, he was interested in maybe having me come up for an interview. So well, my fiance and I uh, were on a plane Friday morning. I kind of put off the Napa folk. Flew up Friday morning, spent Friday and Saturday uh, with Mike. and. By Monday, it was a done deal. So, amazing. You know, one of these, one of those things where your life changes <laughs> over in a, in a weekend. Sure. But uh, you know, I think it. I, I call it a fluke just because, you know, what is now 16 years ago, um, just the sheer number of jobs available in California compared to Oregon. I mean, and to this day, obviously, there's many more jobs to be had in California than there are in Oregon, but there's certainly a lot more jobs today in Oregon than there were back in 2001. True. So from that standpoint, it's right, kind of, I never really expected to land in Oregon, but it just happened to be the right opportunity, so. So tell us about your time at Beaufort. So here we are. So uh, that was a great time. I was uh, Mike's assistant winemaker from 2001 through 2006. Great combination of, of you know, 
winery work and a lot of work in the vineyard too. So uh, Mike was a great mentor. And that's where I really, the, especially the, the viticultural side of things, learned so much. Learned so much all the way around, but you know, I'd say my focus prior to going there was more on the winery end. So being able to, to bring in the whole viticultural element at that point was, was a, a great opportunity. And that's something I think that I always kind of wanted, um, that connection and one foot in the vineyard and one foot in the winery. And it's not, those types of positions don't always present themselves too, too frequently. Sure, sure. Um, might be a little more common up here. Um, just in the scale and the size of wineries, so you end up doing every, you know, little of everything. But uh, it was a great six years there, getting to taste with Robert Parker uh, when he would come out <laughs> once a year to work on the blends. That was very interesting, too. Um, so a good time, but I think, you know, after about, like I said, six vintages at that point, Mike wasn't really ready to uh step aside so to speak nor should he have and i think i was kind of looking for a you know a new new opportunity mm -hmm. and some bigger shoes to put my feet in sure and so how did you find colin clemens well initially actually i i, I spent one year in between beaufort and colin clemens i um I worked uh, with the folks who had purchased Beacon Hill from mm -hmm. Tony Soder. Um, and unfortunately, at a certain point, I kind of could tell that that project wasn't going so well. <laughs> um, and then Joe Stark approached me that summer about the project here at Colin Clemens. And I had met Joe through Mike, because Mike Getzel had uh, done some consulting for Joe on the initial property development and planting of this piece. Joe had already acquired the piece, but um, he uh, he worked with Mike for a couple of years there in in planning out the initial the initial development. So that's where I got to know Joe a little bit. And his son came in 2005 and worked harvest with us at Beaufort. So when Joe approached me in 2007, um, and I came out and saw the property and thought it was a, a great opportunity. So uh, I finished out the year at Beacon Hill and made the 2007 vintages of, of wine for them. Got everything buttoned up and put in barrel and then moved over here. So then, I, and then I assumed, um, the role of both winemaker and vineyard manager when I got here in 2008, which was the first vintage of Colin Clemens. So what's that like doing both? It's busy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess in, you know, in the early years, it was, a, it was a little easier because at that point it was, it was more of a, a viticulture and property development project at that point than a winery. Mm -hmm. um, there was, the winery had not been built yet um so i was in on the some of the, the whole construction project and the planning and a lot of um working out some of the systems that we have here for that but a lot of my time was spent in the vineyard 
and then at that point there were 25 acres planted and so that first year we then planted an additional six acres um, and that's what was taking up my time because you know the first that vintage it was a great vintage and a great vintage to start on but you know, we made that wine over in the tractor barn over here <laughs> um, you know harvesting about 10 tons of fruit off 23 acres so only about 24 barrels of wine sure sure so it's obviously grown since then considerably is is it something you're going to be able to keep doing as it grows will you have to eventually split your duties differently yeah i think my role here has changed you know it, it's a constantly evolving thing also because as the you know now that there's a wine and a product to sell um, there's no way for the winemaker to get out of having to be involved in some of that effort as well so um, we'll have to see uh, you know we're now uh, with everything we just planted this spring right at about 60 acres um, and so we're, we'll still be making around 7,000 cases of wine this year, but we'll probably be growing up to about 10,000. Um, you know, but we've been able to uh, train some good people. My vineyard foreman, who I rely on immensely, mm -hmm. uh, is someone who came here and who didn't have a, a background in, in plants, but you know, I've worked hand in hand with him for the last this will be our 10th year, wow. and he's exceptional. Uh, he's also exceptional in the winery. Um, so we'll see. It does get harder and harder, but so far we're managing to keep up. Sure. So tell me about the vineyard a little bit. What makes it special? Interesting property, uh, a fairly dramatic property, as you can see looking around. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the, you know, the elevations here, we go from about 350 feet on the bottom to just over 650 feet at the high point. Uh, a mix of soils, um, most of them predominantly sedimentary soils. There are some, a couple spots of, of volcanic soil, um, but most of the soils are classified sedimentary. Uh, we have a boatload of rock and all the rock is basalt. Interesting. So you have this mix of sedimentary soils and volcanic rock. And I think the theory is that that rock would have sloughed off from Bald Peak, which sits right above us. I mean, that's Bald Peak State Park right there. Okay. So high point in the Chehala Mountains. So at some point, the volcanic material worked its way down here. Um, to give you an idea, a couple outfits tried to turn this place into a quarry and mine it for rock. Wow. There's back behind you, go up on that hill and it drops off into a big pit, which was the, the initial uh, quarry back there. But uh, there wasn't enough rock to make a viable quarry. But as I say, there's been tons of rock to break all sorts of farm, farm implements. So. <laughs> So this is not, um, it's not an easy piece. It hasn't been an easy piece to develop. Um, you know, you look around and Joe has 
developed this from just raw ground. I mean, it was mostly all in pasture and scrub when he acquired it. A few people, I think, historically had tried to find farm bits and pieces of it, but mm -hmm. none too successfully. I'm going to guess largely probably because of the rock content. Mm -hmm. um, all the roads on the property here, uh, we have built all the base for those roads is built with rock that has come out of the field. <laughs> and if you look around, we've got quite a bit of road. A lot of road. We've come, we've kind of run out of road to build. <laughs> so <laughs> the, these last couple pieces of that we've developed has been interesting. Trying to find a place to put all the rock, you know, and the rock starts from to really big stuff, and mm -hmm. then you kind of you know we work down till you get to maybe somewhere around here and less and that's the stuff you'll never get out and that's what you coexist with um you just pick your farm implements accordingly but <laughs> yeah um it does make so between all the rock some pretty steep angles in places um it is not the easiest uh piece to develop or to farm um but i think it's proven pretty quickly that it's capable of making some very, very good wine. I think stylistically, uh, we are, in my opinion, something of a, of a middle ground between a pure volcanic and a pure sedimentary site. Mm -hmm. uh, initially, I just looking at the soil survey and, and thinking about sedimentary soils, in my experience, especially when we were getting going in 2008, young vines thought okay sedimentary soils young vines we're going to make very uh dark fruited black fruited and very muscular big structured heavily structured wines and what we made was decidedly red fruited <laughs> and more <laughs> elegantly structured which were delicately structured uh so it was you know one of those great examples of you don't really know until you know but i think that is um I think that's the influence of the volcanic rock. I think, um, and I didn't know, I mean, you saw all the rock around, but what is, what is that, in, what is the impact gonna be? And uh, obviously speaking in very broad brush strokes, you know, to me, like pure volcanic soil sites such as Dundee Hills tend to be more red fruited and a little more delicately structured and the pure sedimentary soil sites, like when you cross the street to Ribbon Ridge, because <laughs> we are just across the street, but the okay. soil changes completely. You know, there's, there's no, virtually no rock over there. But anyway, you know, the pure sedimentary sites, which tend to be the black fruited and um, bigger tannins, bigger structured wines. And we kind of, I think, fit somewhere right in the middle, which I, you know, in retrospect, I think is a nice place to be. Sure. So when you were approaching this project to start, you said it, it kind of gotten started and you got hired in. How did you go about approaching learning how to deal, kind of coexist with all the rock and coexist with the interesting elements? Um, well, I guess experience is the greatest teacher, <laughs> right? So, you know, looking around, at that point we had a couple tractors, there was an assortment of implements, we had a spade machine, which I, I actually really like spade machines. Uh, we had we had a rototiller. That was one thing I took a look at and said, I, I don't think that's going to work too well. <laughs> but even the, and I don't think I really quite understood at first how much rock we were really talking about. So after we had rattled the 
spade machine apart and put it back together a few times, I kind of realized that, okay, maybe we need to, this isn't gonna last or work too well, so we need to consider other things. So really what, you know, what we've moved to and acquired at that point are bigger, heavier duty implements and things that aren't PTO driven on it on a tractor, things that aren't mechanical. So mm -hmm. like big heavy discs, things that you just pick up and put down and drag through the soil. Big um, plows that, you know, that with big beefy shanks that can penetrate mm -hmm. a foot or so into the soil. And again, you're just lifting it up and putting it down. Um, so things of that nature. Um, but it was, it's, you know, yeah, you live and learn, trial and error. We, but we learned, I, think, I like to think fairly quickly, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it wasn't going to work, it wasn't going to last very long, so, right, you know. So we saw that you, you really focus on kind of uh, low-yield, sustainable practice, hand-picked grapes. How did that come about, that kind of focus on, especially on the hand-picking of grapes, how did that come about? Well, I, you know, I really hadn't had no experience with mechanical harvesting at that point. And I know mechanical harvesters have come a long way. Um, one of the reasons Joe initially chose a seven foot row spacing as opposed to going to an even narrower, more dense spacing was with an eye to the future if labor became um, the issue or the critical thing mm -hmm. that, that it might be easier to potentially mechanically harvest on that row width. Um, and I haven't really kept too abreast of, I know that um, technology continues to evolve too, so, but, there certainly were a lot more options at a seven, on all implements and tractors, et mm -hmm. cetera, et cetera, um, at the slightly, at seven feet than when you went sub seven feet. Plus with all the hills and side slope that we have. Going to the narrow, the narrower rows, you end up usually going to a higher tractor and there's some danger in that. Um, but um, the, my experience at Beaufair had a very profound effect on me as far as, especially viticulturally. Mm -hmm. And so I was really just taking my experience there and applying it here. And the commitment to low yields, um, especially out of the gate here. You know, when I got here, Joe and Vicky's sort of um, directive to me was they wanted, we wanna see what the property can do. We want to see how good it can be. Mm -hmm. um, and I go, okay, and the only way that I know how to make really good wine with young vines is, you know, we're going to do a lot of soil work, number one, composting, green manuring, turning everything in. Uh, we're going to short prune the plants to begin with, keep the plants small, mm -hmm. but try to build a nice, healthy vigor into it. And then, and by doing that, you're limiting the crop right there because you're only u utilizing maybe half of the fruiting wire 
So you're only, you know, we were only getting like three or four clusters a plant. Mm. Um, but we did, and we took it down to one cluster per shoot. So we ended up with three or four clusters of plant. That's what I should, what I should have said. Um, I think young vines can really surprise you with what they can do. Just don't ask them to do a lot of it. <laughs> um, and we were very fortunate that 2008 was a very good vintage, but uh, it ended up being a very successful first. Um, the you know the wines uh, and the wines are actually still drinking drinking well today. So, um, but as you know, back to low yields. I've uh, always been kind of a believer in low yields. I do think that the depth, the layers um, of Pinot Noir does suffer with yield. Mm -hmm. um, with young vines, it's a little bit different. I mean, again, it's like they'll do good things. Don't ask them to do it a lot. You don't want to put too much of a load. You'll stress the plants out and you can end up paying for that for a number of successive vintages after that. Sure. So. So when they're young, we're very careful about yield and bring the, the vines along very, very slowly. But even with a mature plant, I still am a believer that, um, you know, you, you, you do lose something with yield. And so we, you know, we, we crop our vineyard now that we've gotten to know it and we know which blocks are typically going to produce, say, our best wines and, and which blocks are going to go into our entry-level wines. Mm -hmm. uh, we will do, you know, we will crop the entry-level stuff a little higher versus, you know, our top cuvées. Sure. Um, you know, you have, to, you have to be somewhat cognizant of the, the economics of it. Even though Joe would probably tell you this whole thing is like economic suicide. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> well, especially when you, you know, when you pull 10 tons off 23 acres in the first year, which is about 0.4 ton of the acre is what we yielded in 08. Um, but, uh, but that's something, especially with the young vines, again, saw at Beaufrere. I was at Beaufrere when uh, back in 2002 when we produced the first vintage from the Upper Terrace Vineyard. Mm -hmm. And Michael, I think, was always very, very good. Um, he always made some really exceptional wine on very, very young vines. And to me, that's all, you know, credit to his farming and the way he went about it. And low yields were certainly a, a part of that. So... That talks about, so do you have a like a winemaking philosophy? You kind of talked about your vineyard philosophy a little bit here, but do you have like a winemaking philosophy as well? Yeah, I mean, I, probably kind of the standard line that you probably hear all over, you know, let the, the, the vintage and the site speak. Um, and it, I guess, you know, we hear, we hear that a lot, but, I, you know, I, I think it's, we hear it a lot because it's true. Um, and I want the vineyard. I want the vineyard to express itself. I think when at any time you try to, um, as a winemaker, impose yourself on your site, um, you're generally going down the wrong path. You need to let uh, 
you know, for example, if a wine wants to show me power and intensity, I want that to come from the vineyard and from me to cropping to low yields mm -hmm. and not from me uh, work overly extracting or working that fruit in the winery, whether sure. it be by, you know, m excessive punch downs or letting fermentations get excessively hot or any anything of that nature. Um, I think as a winemaker, you could, you could, you can always make the bigger wine, but did you necessarily make the best wine? And so I think, I think size, especially in the context of Pinot Noir, is something that um, if you're chasing size, you're usually, I think, not going to come out on the, the winning end of things. And so if your site doesn't want to be big, don't try to make it big. Is that mostly just an experience? You, you kind of learn learn your site and learn what it can do? Um, I think it is. I mean, but I think if you, if you approach things with a gentle hand <laughs> and, you know, if you go easy, especially from the beginning, um, and get a sense of what you have, then maybe as you progress, you could perhaps dial it up, so to speak. But uh, you're never really going to have a good handle on what you have unless you, you know, if you go into it kind of sure. <laughs> full bore and, and extraction, 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 I, I don't think you're going you're gonna to miss probably the true essence of what you have to work with. So, you know, and I saw that my time at Beaufrere, just the wines we would make from Beaufrere, the wines from fruit that we would purchase, um, like especially older vine Dundee Hill stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, that stuff, it does not want to be big. And it starts with the color. Mm -hmm. It tends to be paler. It's not um, the, the overall tannin and phenolic profile is just so much less. So if you I think that's the beauty of it um, personally but uh, and I think sometimes that was that's a you know it's a tricky thing because I think there's a perception and it's somewhat reality that the market wants or gravitates towards bigger wines mm -hmm. um, but I found actually that there's and I think even as time has gone on that there's an audience there's definitely an audience for the, the more delicate expressions and styles of Pinot Noir, more so than I initially thought. So in addition to Pinot Noir, you're also doing Chardonnay here? Yeah. We have planted uh, about six acres of Chardonnay now. Anything else? Nope. Just Pinot? Pinot and Chardonnay. And why the focus just so specifically on those? Um, you know, Joe was of the opinion he he really wanted to to focus on something. Um, Pinot Noir, obviously, which is with the bulk of what we do. Um, we decided that when we got into white wines, that we were intrigued mostly by the potential of Chardonnay um, in the Lamb Valley. We think it is the right place to be growing Chardonnay. Uh, I, I, I agree with that. And I've just seen a lot of um, 
we'd rather do a few things and do them very well than to dabble. And as a winemaker, I'm not really one who likes to dabble too much. I know some guys do, mm -hmm. um, or some people do, uh, but I'm not really one of them. I don't really like making, especially lots of tiny experimental lots of things. It, um, if I'm going to do something, I'd rather, I want to have at least kind of a, there's sort of a minimum scale, I think, <laughs> that I like to work on. Mm -hmm. if, like, if I can't produce at least, you know, fill up a good size fermenter or a couple tons of something and walk out with, you know, four or five barrels of it, it's, it kind of becomes a little more of a headache, but, um, and then as far as how that translates to marketing, of course, too. Sure. And sure. So. So in addition to what you do here, you also have your own label. So tell us how that differs from what you're doing here. I do. So um, it's a very tiny project. Uh, it just goes under my name, Stephen Goff. Mm -hmm. um, and as this project, Colleen Clemens, is entirely estate-based, Initially, we, we sourced a little fruit for the rosé we make. We make a dry rosé, mm -hmm. and uh, initially we were sourcing a little fruit for Chardonnay just to get started. But start in 2017, everything will be um, estate grown. Mm -hmm. um, but because, you know, mostly with the Pinot Noir, because we've always been estate grown on the Pinot Noir. So my label was also my opportunity to go and work with fruit from other vineyards in different AVAs and different soils and get to a, to to explore and, and play around a little bit. And I've been in the valley long enough that I had some nice relationships with some good growers, um, Dick Shea and Andy Humphrey, who farms the Weber Vineyard over mm -hmm. in Dundee Hills. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, 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 it's interesting to me on a lot of levels. I mean, it's fun to do, it's fun to, uh, to make wines from other places and I also like what thing I found too is I kind of I like having my nose in a couple other vineyards it's always interesting to see what other people are doing and how that turns out and then you know compared to what we're doing here and sometimes you get some good ideas of hey they look like they're doing that really well and it seems to be working really well maybe we should try that over here <laughs> so it it's had a um, fulfilled a number of different uh, things. Let's me scratch a few itches and <laughs> gives a little something, you know, some additional knowledge back in return. So what have you noticed that's, you, you've talked a little bit about this before, but what is, what is different about the Pinots that you're growing from different, the different AVAs? Well, you know, the Weber Vineyard own rooted 35, I think what I'm working with is 35-year-old own-rooted Pomard. And, you know, that just is a different animal altogether. And it is the, it is the much more elegant, more delicate wine. Um, it's rare that you would make, some, some years the color is even quite pale. It's rare that you would make a, you know, a, a deep dark, mm -hmm. it's not what that, vineyard is not what those soils do um, even in the hot years you know as other vineyards are 
sugars are starting to spike that finger just kind of moves that it's <laughs> to the beat of its own drummer it really does and even in some of these warm years it will pick it two weeks later and it's oh, 23 or 23 and a half bricks so in, an interesting wine a wine that i always uh, i worked with that fruit when i was at beaufrere i always liked it i was always intrigued by it it has taken a little um different approach as far as the farming and I think figuring out the farming element of it. Um, and we do those old vines on a wider spacing. I think it's an, excuse me, an eight by six spacing. You know, we found actually, and just the nature of those soils, mm -hmm. deeper, deeper root systems, more water availability, uh, more vigor. Actually, that site has proven to be somewhat you know, run a little counter to my general philosophies on yield because we have found that we do need to put a little more fruit on that, on that, on those vines just to make them work a little bit more. Interesting. Um, and then of course, just going over to, you know, working over the shave vineyard on, into a, a pure, uh, sedimentary site. Um, I always, again, Worked with that fruit from the time I got here in 2001. Um, always liked that vineyard and and what it does. So uh, yeah, it's it is uh, that I would say as far as farming and I'd say more similar uh, in approach to what we do here mm -hmm. to what's going over there versus. Um, what we need to do over in Dunny Hills is a little different. So you've been in the valley for a little over 15 years now. Tell me about, other than just pure size, tell me about some of the changes you've seen in, in the Willamette Valley and the Oregon wine industry since you've been a part of it. Yeah, it does keep growing, doesn't it? <laughs> I can't even keep up with uh, there's, uh, you know, every day there's, you drive by, there's a new vineyard. Who's that? I have no idea. <laughs> um, I've kind of got my hands full here, so I don't sure. But uh, I, I, to me, the overall uh, quality across the board, board, viticulturally and in the winery, just continues to rise. Um, I know that when I first got here in 01, the valley still really felt mom and pop. Um, and I think, you know, some people probably lament that that some of that element might be, you know, getting lost or, or um, as the as the valley gets bigger and bigger players come into the market. Um, but with, you know, with some of the mom and pop also came, I think, some more variable quality across the board. Um, but even a lot of the small operations, too, I think have, as things have, you know, gone, have raised their game. Mm -hmm. um, and I think because they've, they've had to, and some of the ones who didn't have gone away. And mm -hmm. uh, to me, that's all just the natural evol evolution of the place. Um, and so, you know, I think there's, when I look at vintages, like 2011, you know, probably what is the coldest vintage on record 
um, probably the latest pick dates on average. I didn't start picking here until the 26th of October. <laughs> I've never. Goodness. Yeah, and you know, to be receiving fruit in November. But I, I, I think about that vintage and I think, what if 2011 happened 10 or 15? I don't even think in 01 we would have been able to handle it as well. And I think if you went back into the, you know, another five or 10 years, yeah. it would have even gotten worse. Um, and so you just, you see it in the quality of the wines, even in the tough years. Um, so that, you know, that where people are still making good wines in tough years. And I think that, uh, Uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with pretty much all the vintages of the 90s. I've had all those wines. Um, in the 80s, I'm less familiar with. I've kind of heard some of the horror stories. <laughs> heard some of the successes, but I've heard some sort of the horror stories. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, again, knowledge, experience. Um, and it's and it's it's paid off people have you know have learned from the past people have brought in better technology better ideas mm -hmm. um, better practices but yeah it's uh you know i think 11 and 10 or 15 that had happened 10 or 15 that would have been scary <laughs> so what happens next what is there what does the wine industry look like in 10 15 years from now Good question. I don't know. Is it going to look radically different than where we are right now? I don't know if it's going to be radically different. I mean, it seems like there's this interest of, of larger entities coming into play. It's probably that trend's probably going to continue. Um, I'm, you know, I'm sure that could also get interrupted by whatever economic cycle we're in at the moment. Um, and it's probably going to continue. But uh, I don't look at that as a bad thing. Uh, to me, there's still lots of room for Oregon to grow, especially out in the marketplace as a category. Hmm. I think, you know, here we're surrounded by it and it's our, we live in our bubble and it's the, you know, and you, you leave the bubble and, and you realize, despite how much work has gone on, how much more there still is to do about generating, telling the organs, not just telling the story, but generating the awareness and getting the wines out there, which I think, you know, probably the thing that maybe, you know, concern me the most moving forward is what I see happening out in, uh, with wine sales and distribution. Mm -hmm. And that's effect on smaller size wineries, because we are still on the whole really small I mean you know there's what most I don't know what the average size winery in Oregon is but it's got to be sub 10,000 cases yeah probably and so with all the consolidation that I see going on in distribution um, and I see all these vineyards going in and I do wonder where's all this fruit gonna go um, because it, you you know, making it on a certain part is the fun part, and selling it is the really hard part. 
and it's I think it's getting harder and harder for small producers to kind of tap into um, really good distribution channels. We've even seen that here at, at Colleen Clements. Um, you know, our, the, the, the products, the wines have been in general very well received, very well reviewed. We've gotten, um, I'd say, you know, our, our good share of, of accolades. Mm -hmm. Um, it's still hard for us to break into markets. And so that'd be the trend that I think is, and then maybe that's what's gonna drive some of the bigger entities that continue to come in here. Because I mean, I think that's one of the big, uh, a player like Kendall Jackson has a lot of, um, you know, they've got a lot of good people working for them and there's a lot of you know, experience and know-how on the, on the production side of things. But I think where they have a tremendous advantage is in, in the, their uh, sales and marketing um, departments and so on. But, you know, when I, when I look at the big players too, it, it, I, I almost think the Valley needs them to a certain extent. And you think about all the, that marketing power that they bring, and I think the Valley still needs that. And they're going to be out there beating the drum, and it's good. <laughs> so, Without that behind you, and with all of the competition you have, especially local competition you have, how do you make a name for yourself as a small production winery? Well, it's not easy. I think you have to um, you have to work very hard about at it, and you have to work on all fronts. But I think a lot, you know, grassroots can get. Grassroots marketing, I think, can really get kind of overlooked. It can, it can do a lot for you on the small scale. And a lot of it's just getting out and getting your name out there. Um, I mean, the, the quality has to be in the bottle. The competition is such that you, you need to be real about, about what you're doing and how you're pricing it. Mm -hmm. um, and if anything, you know, we've, Especially, especially being a, a somewhat newer player, we have really striven to over deliver, um, and I, and I, I think we, we've succeeded in that. We're probably not succeeding economically in that, in a certain sense, if you know what I mean. Um, but um, I think it's it, it's one element of it, and I think it's important. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it does take time. Um, it's going to take time and persistence. Um, like I said, we've had plenty of success with the major wine critics, Spectator, Advocate, Tanzer. Um, but you need to find other outlets to tell your story um, and, and other venues to, you know, if you're, if you're sitting around waiting for the score to make you, it's got to be one hell of a score, <laughs> you know, like you know, because the scores don't move the needle the way they used to either. A lot we, of good wine. There's a lot of good wine, but I remember, you know, when I first got here, came up here in '01 and was interviewing at Beaufort. I think they had just gotten 94 points on the '99 vintage, which I think was the highest 
from the spectator, which is the highest that they had received at that point. And and that was kind of a that was kind of a buzz, you know. And that got the phone ringing. And um, now, wow, it. Uh, I mean, ninety four. If you're not priced too high, we'll still get the phone get the phone to ring. But you know, if you come out and say you're forty, fifty bucks, and you get a ninety two, the phone doesn't ring. So you know that that whole element and dynamic has definitely changed, and I've seen so some good old-fashioned shoe leather too. And that's the I think the, the 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 frustrating part about like work out selling wine through through distribution once you get distribution mm -hmm. is that you know you you, know, you, you got to go to the market and then sell your wine because those guys aren't gonna make it happen for you so that's a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of expense and it but you have to go and visit those markets repeatedly. Um, and start developing the relationships in those markets. Mm -hmm. um, if you're expecting the distributor to do all the work for you, it just it doesn't happen. But, so I think all those combination, and of course, we've all seen the importance of the direct-to-consumer element of it. So I think if you want to succeed, you have to be you've got to be working on all fronts. Sure tasting room, winery experience, direct-to-consumer experience, and then, you know, depending on what your size is at a certain point, you're going to have to, you're really going to have to wrestle with the, the national scene and the three-tier distribution system. There's no way around it that I've, <laughs> that I've seen in my experience. You know, we all, I think we're all searching for it. Sure. And maybe if you want to turn out a thousand or two thousand cases and you've got to you know, you could sell it all out your door and, and through a tasting room, and that's fine, but we don't see, we see less and less of that. Sure. Yeah. So what's next for Colleen Clemens, then? What's in the future? Well, we still have, um, we have 41, we will have 47, We'll have 50 producing acres. We still have blocks that have yet to produce. So we're still tapping into new mm -hmm. material over the next few years. I think you'll slowly see our overall production um, rise. But, uh, you know, it's the development of the property is pretty much complete. Um, we maybe have an acre or two that left to plant, mm -hmm. um, but uh, so waiting for those those the plantings we've done the last couple of years to start coming into production and then into maturity, and seeing where you know in the next uh, I don't see any radical changes. Um, just continuing to explore what's here and see where that takes us. What advice would you have for someone who wanted to make wine in Oregon? Um, on what level? Like uh, someone looking to get into the industry? Sure, look at somebody kinda? looking to get into the industry. 
I would encourage um, I would encourage them to go get some formal education in it uh, and to study it. Um, I think that there's a trend. There are plenty of people who have who who make wine and continue to make wine who don't come out of one of the big programs or one of the formal programs, and some of them do quite well. Um, most of those people have also typically probably been fortunate enough to also have come across a very good mentor. And while experience is the ultimate teacher, and finding a good mentor and someone to learn under I think is critical, I would also encourage them to acquire some of the you know the the science and the you might you, what you might call the, the more formal education I think in there's kind of currently a bit of a trend that's almost anti that and I think we see that up here in Oregon a fair amount um, uh, and especially you know, you know people who are coming whether they're coming from a restaurant background or something like that and they dive into winemaking and um, and saying that you don't need uh, you don't need the other side of it, um, but of course when things start going wrong, you know who who do they who do they tend to lean on? <laughs> so I think it is it's always a blend of the two, and I think you know if you you know where would where would the California wine industry be you know if it wasn't for UC Davis and mm -hmm. Fresno State and um, places like that and of course we have the program here at Oregon State and Chemeketa and mm -hmm. I think that's a, a, a really important component of it that just like I said it's getting a little short shrift lately but I would you know but the combination of that and again finding someone to learn under because um, it is there is that whole craft craft to it mm -hmm. And I think also just developing, um, having a really good sense about wine in general, really exploring wines and tasting wines, developing what I call an, an aesthetic about wine, where you have that sense of, you understand sort of wine from a variety of contexts and where you fit in mm -hmm. and not just Oregon wine but California wine and Italian wine and French wine and Spanish wine and and of course you know southern hemisphere even that is coming on but um, mm -hmm. I think that's really important I think that's where you see some of the some of the people who come more from a and I you know I have a bit of a restaurant background too before I went but you know went went back to school chose to go back to school for it um, and in and you know and I toyed around with the idea of not doing that, but in hindsight, I'm very I'm glad that I did. But um, you know, I think some of the the folks who who have succeeded from that world, the good ones, I think, is that that they have a good under a general good understanding and of the aesthetic of wine. Sure. That's all the. Questions I have for you. Is there anything else you'd like to say or anything I should have asked that I didn't as our plane flies over our head here? <laughs> anything, any final words? I don't think so. All right. No. Well, thank you very much for your time. We yeah. really appreciate it. Thank you for all the great answers. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. 
And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.